Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and I'm so glad that we're going to have a couple hours today together. We've got a great show planned. Rosie's been working hard. So we've got uh, Pastor Brent Kuhlman coming on in just a minute. And then Victoria Riolano is going to be joining me. And then my friend from high school, Tim Mahoney, who's a filmmaker, who's uh, made a movie called Patterns of Evidence, going to be out in 700 theaters next week. So we're going to talk about that. So I am always delighted to talk to Pastor Brent Kuhlman. He is the senior pastor um, in Murdoch, Nebraska. Brent, welcome. Hi, Bill. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. Shalom. Amen. Yeah. So we're going to talk today about uh, Christianity is not in any one political camp, is it? Uh, No, it's not. Which makes me happy. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good thing. But you know, it's interesting in Luke's gospel— Luke, he's not only an evangelist, not only proclaims the good news of Jesus being the savior of all sinners, but another aspect of Luke's gospel. And, you know, he also wrote Acts. He, one of his themes is that he wants to, he wants to be, he wants to show that Jesus and Christianity are not politically subversive. And I, I want to do a flyby of that today with you and your Please do. listeners. Yeah. I want to hear what you have to say. So let's get started. Okay, well, you know, when you read Luke's Gospel, right off the bat, you, you see something in chapters 2 and 3, and it's this. Um, he connects the birth of Jesus and the beginning of John's John the Baptist's ministry with certain rulers in the Roman world. Um, so he, he's very interested in dates and historical facts, but there's more to this. Um, Luke is aware like we are in our culture right now in our country. <laughs> it's parallel universe almost. Luke is aware that the secular Roman world and the importance of Rome's attitude toward the emerging Christian church is, is very important. Because since the days of Julius Caesar, I don't know if your listeners are aware of this, the Roman government had granted favors to Jewish settlers in the empire. Now, so the big question would be, what would Rome's attitude be toward Christians who, at the moment when Luke's writing and years after, are experiencing persecution from these Jewish settlements? Would Rome do the same? All right. Let me back up just a little bit more if I could. Um, the references to Roman empire, emperors by Luke, like, for example, in Luke 2, verses 1 through 7, you have Luke telling us that there was a decree for a sentence, a census mm-hmm. that was issued by Octavian, who was later known as Caesar Augustus. We learn in Luke 3 that John the Baptist began his ministry in the 15th year of the reign of Octavian's successor, Tiberius Caesar. And we know from Acts 11 that there was a famine that took place in Judea when Claudius was emperor. And it's that same emperor um, that excluded or banished Jews from Rome. And that's just mentioned in Acts chapter 18, which Luke wrote as well. 
And let's not forget, everybody, that, that Paul, as a Roman citizen by birth, appealed to the Caesar known as Nero in Acts 25, in Acts 26, and Acts 27. So, in other words, the only, well, let me, what I'm trying to say not very well is when, when we learn about all these emperors that Luke is listing, there's only one that he kind of leaves out, and that's Caligula. Uh, who ruled from 37 to 41 AD. Okay, so my point is Luke's not just a name dropper here and not just dropping dates and just historical facts for the sake of historical facts. Yes, he's a careful historian, Luke is, and he connects the events of Christianity with secular dates and rulers. That's true. But there are several clues in his gospel and in Acts, which I'm going to go over with you guys, Good. that Luke is an apologist. That is to say, he's a defender of the Christian faith. That is to say that Jesus and Christianity are not politically subversive. So that he would defend Christianity from the claim from a lot of people that being a Christian was incom incompatible with being a good citizen. Because at this time, there's no doubt that certain officials in Rome and all over the Roman Empire would be looking with suspicion at these Christians and their faith, Christianity. All right, so when you read Luke's gospel, what do we find? We find Luke emphasizing something very strongly. And what is it? It's toward the end of his gospel. It's the innocence of Jesus. I know our, our, our readers, our listeners know this, but I want to push this to the hilt. Let's not forget that, you know, Matthew and Mark, in their accounts, they refer to our Lord's hearing before the Sanhedrin, and they also record his trial before Pilate. But it's only Luke. It's only Luke who includes our Lord's appearance before who? You guys remember? It's Herod Antipas, mm. the ruler of Galilee. That's in Luke 23, verses 6 through 12. So Luke is suggesting, I would contend, the agreement of Pilate, a Roman official, and Herod, a Jewish official, on the innocence of Jesus. And so in Luke 23, uh, for example, verses 4, uh, verses 14 to 15, and verse 22, let's not forget that Luke has Pilate saying over and over again that Jesus is innocent. And to be precise, if my math is correct, Pilate declares Jesus innocent three times. And it's all against what accusations? Well, it's these accusations that we read about in Luke 23, that we found this man, and notice the language here, misleading our nation, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. He, listen carefully, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. And Pilate says three times, I don't find him guilty of that. You see what I'm getting to? Getting oh, yeah. Here? Oh, yeah. I'm liking right. this. All right. Now let's have some more fun with this. Um, continuing with Luke's gospel, Luke also mentions our Lord's innocence when. So after Pilate, it's when Jesus is hanging on the cross, when one of the criminals that's crucified with Jesus says what? Do you remember this, folks? It's Luke 23, verse 41. The criminal says, this man, referring to Jesus, 
has done nothing wrong. Uh, <laughs> and let's push it even further. So um, the Roman centurion, you remember, in Matthew's account, and that's Matthew 27, verse 54, and in Mark's account, Mark 15, 39, recognizes Jesus as, do you all remember? The centurion in Matthew and Mark's account says Jesus is who? The Son of God. But how does Luke record it? Luke records an additional piece of information that the centurion praised God. And folks, do you remember what the centurion said in Luke's gospel about Jesus after he died? Depends on your translation. I'll give you two translations. The Roman centurion said, certainly or truly, this was a righteous man or an innocent man. Hmm. Bingo. That's Luke 23, 47. So what I'm trying to say is that in Luke's gospel, he is keen to show or he wants to emphasize very much uh, or underscore, if you will, the innocence of Jesus, although he had been condemned to death by a Roman court of law, and even though he was crucified as a common criminal. So this is huge, I think, in Luke's gospel. It is. So if, and I love the homework you're doing on this, Brent. This is fascinating. Well, this would be an important point for Luke to make in the first century, and I think it's an important point for us to make in the 21st century, namely the innocence of Jesus. Um, if anybody's investigating Christianity, you can push this to the hill. Uh, because people investigate Christianity as a possible threat, don't they? Mm -hmm. Today and even back then, you know, in Luke's day. So Luke wants to stress this big time. I also love, Brent, how we knew that Jesus was without fault and completely innocent. And all this is being repeated over and over by multiple people. Right. And I can't emphasize enough that those accusations that they made against Jesus, and it, and it fits with what Luke's trying to, to point. We found this man misleading our nation, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he's Christ, a king, stirs up the people, teaches, implying that it's all false teaching. In other words, to use our language here in 21st century America over the last year or two, he's an insurrectionist, and so are the Christians. And so they would be demonized. And Luke is saying, nope, 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 nope. Uh, Pilate said he was innocent. In fact, Pilate even quotes Herod. If you read the text very carefully, that Herod found him not guilty as well. In Pilate's, uh, when, you know, that one time when Pilate said he's not guilty. Mm -hmm. Oh, fascinating. Okay, Pastor Brent Kuhlman is my guest. We're going to take a little break when we come back, continuing this very interesting uh, discussion on uh, Jesus and being not only uh, innocent, but made innocent many times by the witnesses, but also um, uh, that there's no political divide in, in with Jesus. So we'll be right back. If you'd like to know more about what it means to begin a relationship with Christ or to chat with someone about it, just text the word FAITH to 41224.
Welcome back to the show. I'm with Pastor Brent Kuhlman. He is the senior pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Murdoch, Nebraska. All right, Brent, you've sort of taken me uh, off guard a little bit with this topic just because it is uh, so interesting. You're doing a fantastic job of connecting the dots with what Luke is teaching in this passage um, about the innocence of Jesus. So good. So where do we go? Where do we go next? Well, th- this is delicious. And just to recap, and then we'll move on to the okay. Luke, Luke's writing of Acts. So what we observed before the break is that Jesus is innocent. He's declared to be innocent against all kinds of accusations, that he's a political subser- subversive, etc. Um, he's so Pilate declares him innocent. And with his, with his declarations, he includes Herod. Um, the, the thief on the cross says, this man's done nothing wrong. And the Roman centurion said, certainly this man was innocent. So the innocence of Jesus, to recap what we did in the first, peri- the first half, the innocence of Jesus then would be um, an important point then to make to anyone who was investigating Christianity as a possible threat to the Roman political establishment. All right, so now let's move on. So as Luke stressed our Lord's innocence in his gospel, so then in Acts, he continues to emphasize the political innocence. That is to say, they're not political subversives of, who do you think? The followers of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Christian faith. And they're referred to as the way, of course, in the book of Acts. And in Acts, Luke traces the expansion of the early Christian church from Jerusalem through Judea, Samaria, Caesarea, Antioch, Greece, and then ultimately to to Rome, where Paul goes. And he often stresses, this is interesting in Acts, read it carefully, Luke is careful to emphasize and stress the response of Roman officials, Roman government officials, to the Christian message. So, for example, two of these officials, one would be towards the beginning of Paul's first missionary journey, and then another one would be shortly before Paul reached Rome. These two officials are favorably impressed by Paul's message. So, for example, I'll give you the names now. Sergius Paulus on the island of Cyprus, Luke tells us, He was converted in Acts chapter 13, verses 6 through 12. And Publius, he was a governing official on the island of Malta. Remember, Paul was shipwrecked on Malta. Mm -hmm. If he wasn't converted, I mean, the text doesn't explicitly say that he was converted. At least he presented gifts to Paul. And when they embarked on their travels again back on a ship, he made sure that they had everything that they needed. And that's in Acts chapter 28 verses 7 through 10. Now, between those two incidents that I just mentioned, Paul's message of the Lord Jesus Christ is brought to a lot of people's attention, uh, in particular officials, both local officials in the empire and then Roman officials in general. And each time, each time, Paul is exonerated, (laughs) With an added implication, and this is important, when Paul is exonerated, you have an added implication that the Christian faith and the Christian church is is politically innocent of charges of, to use our language of today, insurrection or treason. So these incidences, these in-between times, include Paul's release by the magistrates at Philippi. And that's recorded in Acts 16, 
verses 35 to 39. Then there's another account when Paul is discharged before Gallio, the Roman proconsul of Achaia, and that's in Acts chapter 18, verses 12 to 17. And then you have the admission of two Roman governors. I re- This is just like Pilate now, two Roman governors in that sense, like Pilate, governors, Felix and Festus. And Paul, before these two governors, had been unjustly accused in Jerusalem and in Caesarea. This is recorded in Acts chapter 23, verse 29, in Acts chapter 24, verses 22 to 27, and Acts 25, verses 24 to 27, and Acts 26, verse 32. I want to repeat what I just said here about that, that before Felix and Festus, Paul was unjustly accused in Jerusalem and Caesarea, but later exonerated. In the final scene in Acts, it's in Acts chapter 28, which I think everybody knows, and the verses I'm I'm thinking about in particular are verses 30 to 31. Where do we find Paul? We find him in Rome, and he's under house arrest. That is to say, he has freedom, freedom to teach and preach without major hindrances, if you will. The point I'm trying to make here is that Luke is trying to give a clear indication that Rome, politically speaking, Rome, politically speaking, sees no conflict between its political policies and Christianity. So if I can summarize what I've covered here just in a real quick flyby, is that the general uh, effect, if you will, of these clues that I've referenced in Luke, in his gospel, and in Acts, is this. That while Luke certainly has other purposes in mind, with these clues, he's attempting also to answer the charge. When people make the charge, the Christianity is the enemy of the Roman state. And Luke is saying, no, it isn't. No, it isn't. So that was, that was the main thing I wanted to cover. Well, you did a fantastic job of covering it. And I have to say, you're quite good at pronouncing names, too. <laughs> I, want to say you, I want to say you've worked at that to get some of those names down, right? Oh, when you've been a pastor over 30-some years. <laughs> yeah. So Now, ha- having said all that, Bill, okay. this doesn't mean, you know, I don't want to give our, our listeners the impression that, okay, so the governing officials left the early Christians alone. Not, not, not necessarily. They were persecuted heavily, okay? And, and does it, I'm not trying to give the listeners the impression that we in America are going to be left alone. Uh, and they're gonna they're gonna hear this. They're gonna read the New Testament and see what I've or hear what I've said. Are they gonna leave us alone? No. Why not? Because in Luke's day and in our day, it's a parallel universe. Generally speaking, civil authorities think that they're gods. They mm. think that they're little divinities. Yeah. And Christianity and Jesus are indeed a threat, as we are seeing right now today. Okay. And, you know, this, this is just par for the course. Um, so I wanted to make this point. You know, Jesus in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5 says, you know, blessed are you and they persecute you falsely on account of my sake and my name. And in John 15, you know, remember Jesus says, you know, they hated me. They're going to hate you. Mm-hmm. But remember in Matthew 5, Jesus is counted all for joy. But that's how they treated the prophets who went before you, you know. Um, 
I guess what I'm trying to say, not very well, so you got to have mercy on this old man, is that, yeah, they're going to go after us, even though Jesus was innocent and Christianity is innocent. Uh, it's not politically subversive, although it will be treated politically subversive because we worship Jesus, not the state. The state's not God. Jesus is. So they're going to come after us. And when they do, we're just going to suffer it. And I like to say it this way. That when, no matter what it is, you remember Jesus in the Gospels always says this, you're going to be brought before governing authorities. You are. <laughs> and uh, when we are brought before governing authorities and they ask us, are you a Christian? You know, like when, when they asked, when the servant girls asked Peter at the bonfire, you know, yeah. <laughs> when Jesus was arrested. When they, you're a follower of Jesus, aren't you? We're not going to do the Peter thing and collapse and cave. We're going to say, yeah, I believe in Jesus Christ. Would you like to believe in him too? <laughs> <laughs> And then be prepared to suffer. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I wanted to make sure I made both those points. Yeah, and excellent points. And there will be persecution. Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. So there will be affliction. There will be trouble. There will be persecution. Every time you take a stand for Christ, you will you will have people pushing against you. And I think Paul says, you know, I count it joy that I can suffer, that I've been able to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Yeah, yeah. And truly, I think we're going to learn that in the United States very quickly here. I hope I'm wrong, but I think that's coming quite soon. Yeah. Say more about that observation. Well, I want to repeat what I said earlier, um, maybe in a different way. Okay. Um, people on both sides of the aisle, politically speaking now, they make the same mistake, Bill. I mean that. And what's the mistake? Is that politics is salvific. Politics is salvational. Government saves. No, it doesn't. Government has boundaries. Government only has to deal with certain things in this world. Read Paul's letter to the Romans, and you'll learn about what, why God created civil authority. It's to punish criminals and to commend those who do good. You know, we pay our taxes. Why? So they can, like, build roads, et cetera, et cetera. But um, politics is not salvific. Only Jesus is. That's it. Mm -hmm. and, and so, you know, this, this is the challenge that we have as American citizens. Because it's so passionate and it's so emotional that we think a politician is going to be our savior. No, no, no. Better not go that way. It'll, it'll end badly. Yeah. Jesus alone saves. I love that. And, and Brent, I love the word salvif salvific, but not everybody knows what that means. It means it doesn't save. So politics doesn't give you salvation. Right. Only Jesus does. Yeah. Politics only does certain earthly things that God has prescribed. And the problem is, is that politics, speaking in general, and politicians want to exceed those boundaries and act as if they are gods and can do anything and everything. And we're tempted to believe it. Yeah, absolutely. Don't do it, folks. Yeah. All right, Brent, you always come with fire for me. I love it. Thanks, Bill. Peace be with you. Peace be with you, and shalom, my brother. All right, we'll take a little break. When we come back, Victoria Riolano has written a book about the heart of a mother. Boy, you're going to like this interview. We'll take a short break and be right back. Hour two, Tim Mahoney's going to join me. He's a high school friend of mine who's a filmmaker, and he's got a brand new movie coming out uh, next week called Patterns of Evidence. It's going to be featured on the 15th and the 17th at 700 theaters across the country. You can learn more about that at PatternsOfEvidence.com. It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time, let's get it started. 
Jump in your car yeah. What's for dinner yeah. It's the afternoon show With Bill Arno All right, moms are one of my very favorite topics. And as we even consider and get ready for Mother's Day, it's always uh, fun to talk about moms. And not only do I get to talk to a mom today, but I get to talk to a warrior mother. Um, Victoria is a military mom of seven. So she's written a brand new book called Warrior Mother, Equipping Your Heart to Fight for Your Family's Faith. I already love everything about this book. Victoria, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so tell me from your uh, your side of the uh, of the of the uh, microphone what the new book and tell me about it and why moms are going to love this message. Yeah, so this book is really made for the heart of the mom, just to really encourage her that she's not alone in her fight, whether it's like the daily battles of the toddlerhood stage or whether it's the deeper spiritual battles that we all face in life. Just to encourage her to know that God is with her, she could trust Him, and to give her a little bit of strategy. So I think moms are really going to enjoy this opportunity to hear from a fellow mom who has a couple of degrees to back it up as well, but then also the different things at the end of each chapter, like the prayers, the reflections, and those victory verses, I think is going to make it a book that she could really interact with and learn a lot from. Mm-hmm. You've got a lot of practical experience in addition to holding a master's in child and adolescent psychology, having seven kids of your own. You've got a lot of real life experience. Uh, so I'm just curious, uh, how many boys, how many girls? Oh, yeah. So we have five boys. We'll actually have six boys as of July um, and two girls. So we're a big boy family here. That's awesome. So did you and your husband both decide when you were naming them or did you say... If we have another son, I really want to name him. And did you get your way or how did that work? I'm just curious. (laughs) So my husband only had one request, and that's that his first son have his name. Awesome. After that, he didn't really care. He's like, you can (laughs) whatever you want. Okay. So it's been amazing. I'm like, yes, most people don't get this amount of uh, authority. (laughs) Yeah, so you did most of the naming, huh? Yes. Oh, that's awesome. And so did you just recently have another daughter? Did I get that yeah. right? Yeah. So, well, she's five. So okay. my oldest daughter is 16, and then I have one that's five. So it's, it took a few boys to get that girl. <laughs> okay. And then do you have one on the way? Yep, another boy on the way. Oh, fantastic. And have you have named that boy yet? Yeah, so this one, surprisingly, my husband actually was like, I just feel like his name should be Joshua. I I'm love like, well, it. You know what? I picked all the other ones. I, I guess you can have this one. <laughs> Isn't it awesome that we can be praying for Joshua right now? That yes, by yes. name. That's so beautiful. All right. Now, Victoria, your your book is written mother to mother. Uh, so in, in that you talk less about parenting and more about spiritual transformation. Tell me about this and why do you think this is the key? Yeah, so I feel like there are a lot of books on parenting. I know I've read a few, especially the ones that, you know, teach behavior modification, which is great. But I've just found more and more that if mom's heart isn't towards God and she's not having that personal relationship with him, some of those other things are very difficult to put into place because she'll try those tips and tricks. But at the end of the day, if she's not fully reliant on Christ to help her with that, Um, she'll have a hard time every time. So for me, spiritual transformation, learning to 
really think about the way we think about parenting ourselves and how we think about God's role in our parenting is kind of more important than some of those other things in the long run. Mm-hmm. Victoria Riolano is my guest. She's written a book called Warrior Mother, Equipping Your Heart to Fight for Your Family's Faith. So you spent a whole chapter talking in your book about the war plan. Now you're going to need to do some explaining to my audience about what what is the war plan and the importance of it. Yeah. So this is actually my favorite chapter in the whole book. And so something God really showed me is that you in life probably don't start most things without a plan. Even if you're making grocery lists, there's some strategy behind what we need you know, versus what we don't need or vacation, the same thing. We plan for it. And so I feel like sometimes when we go into parenting, we're like, okay, I don't know what's going to happen. We're just going to go for it. <laughs> and so the, the Lord really showed me what if we, you know, wherever we are in our parenting journey, take a moment like to pause and to think, like, what is God telling me to do for this specific child? Is there a mission for our family or a vision statement that we have for our family or that God has given us? Are there some Bible verses that we want to stand on? Are there some non-negotiables? In real war, there's some non-negotiables that the countries kind of come up with together. Like, these are things that are not allowed. Um, what if we did that, like, from the beginning? But if we didn't get a chance to do it in the beginning— What if we do it now? And so the war plan is about really sitting down, seeking the Lord for strategic things for your child, whether it be the goals or the Bible verse for the family or whatever the case may be, so that you have a foundation, something to kind of lean back on when things feel a little crazy or out of control. You can remember your why and kind of the direction that God wants to bring your family in. Mm-hmm. I like that a lot. You know, when you talk about a war plan, does that come out of your experience in the military? So I personally wasn't in the military. I'm the military spouse. Gotcha. <laughs> but you guys, you guys talk military. Oh yeah, all the time. Uh, I would imagine. All the time. Yeah. And yeah. one thing that, when it comes to like military, one thing that's always my husband talked about was the chain of command. Mm-hmm. And so it's very important to know who's in charge, who's running the show, and what that means for you to get do what you're told when you're told how you're told. Yeah. And so that's what this war plan is. It's the opportunity to actually like pause and pray so that you can do what you're told when you're told how you're told yeah. uh, by God, you know, our ultimate commander in chief. Yeah. Victoria, I bet when you were putting this together and developing a chapter on the war plan, I bet you learned a bunch of this from your mom. I bet she was a warrior towards you. Oh, yeah. Um, You know, a lot of my time as a child, she was a single mom. So I watched her really go through the struggles of trying to just provide for me. But then also she's a pastor's child herself. So she would always still try to instill those values in me of what it means to know God and to trust God. And so she did her part too, definitely, to make sure that even when I became a mom, I was empowered to know that. I'm, she always still tells me now, like, I'm so proud of you. You're doing a good job with all those kids. I couldn't handle too. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, she's definitely been a source of true encouragement. That's fantastic. So, when did you go from becoming, uh, you know, in your mothering journey, you decided you wanted to, you know, up your game, so to speak, and take on this identification of warrior mother. When did this transition, when did that happen? 
Yeah, I think I realized that there was going to be some battles ahead from the moment I put the little baby in the car seat, like Mm -hmm. the first child. Um, And there were. But I think it wasn't until my oldest daughter got around that tween age and the tween attitude started to happen. And I realized I'm definitely not equipped for this. You know, I was able to fumble through the other stuff, but this is different. And I really had, that's actually where the war plan came from because I'm like, I have to definitely be on top of this and be praying and seek God for every step of this journey moving forward. And so being a warrior mother for me has been that opportunity to be able to pause, to hear God like completely and know what he's saying for my children. So my strength as a warrior mom doesn't come from myself. It comes from knowing God's truth, knowing his promises, and knowing that when he fights battles for us, like he wins every time. So Mm. I can trust him with my parenting. And so that alone gives me courage and strength to fight another day. And so uh, I guess that would have been like five years ago that I really embraced this concept of like, I'm a mom, but I'm strong because God, God's strong and he's leading me. So we're good. Mm, I think of courage and discipline and strength and all the things that that you've talked about so far is essential to being, you know, not only raising seven kids as you're doing uh, with one more to come, or I shouldn't, I'm not going to stop you at one more to come, but, <laughs> but th- this whole um, warrior mentality is uh, going to be so powerfully impacting your kids in such a amazing way. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Uh, Victoria Riolano is my guest. Her book is Warrior Mother, and it's um, equipping your heart to fight for your family's faith. And I hear, uh, Victoria, more and more at the, the radio station here, parents lamenting the fact that their kids have drifted away from their faith. Uh, they, they have this incredible heart for their child to return to faith. Uh, maybe you would be willing to speak to some of those moms out there whose hearts are a little bit broken today. Yeah, and I think that's definitely something that I've seen um, as a pastor's wife. I've seen, you know, families that raise their children and the Lord, but then when they get older, they make that decision for themselves that maybe salvation isn't for them or whatever the case may be. But my encouragement that I always give to my church members is that they set the foundation. Right. Ultimately, children, youth, adults, they're going to make their decisions. But as long as we know that we instilled that foundation, we are on to something because the Bible says train up a child in a way that she'll go. And when they are old, they shall not depart. So we can stand on that promise. And so if you can't do anything else, if you feel completely hopeless, you can still pray. Mm-hmm. So never stop praying for that one who seems far away. We know the story of the prodigal son. You never know what God can do. They can still come back and be completely restored mm. to the faith. So don't give up. Yeah. Keep praying. Victoria, I see in your book that you've, you've got uh, action steps. You want to uh, give people practical and, uh, things to do and ways in which to, uh, to apply uh, what you're teaching in this book. And I would love for you to talk about uh, some of the takeaways that each that the reader will have from your book. Yeah, so at the end of each chapter, you know, I definitely want to give each mom that opportunity to have like a verse that they could stand on 
for the week. They could feel free to memorize it, but just soak it into their heart. And then also we have like those reflection questions and sometimes there are action steps. So for example, with that war plan we were talking about earlier, the action step is, Hey, let's try to come up with a mission statement or, or at verse for your family. Um, and then also at the end, there's a prayer. So I just really, my hope, my takeaway that I hope every mom gets is that if they feel completely helpless, like they can do nothing else, that they can at least pray. And so for me, having that prayer instilled in there, if maybe you're not used to praying or you don't know what to say, gives mom that opportunity to at least have somewhere to start when it comes to praying for their children and for themselves. Mm-hmm. I love the prayers and the reflections. You've got a victory verse, reflections, and, and a power prayer. And uh, Lord, I have come to you asking for protection of my mind, heart, and physical body. I ask not only for myself, but for, and then fill in the blank who you're praying for, I am aware that there is a real enemy who desires to kill, steal from, and destroy God's people. Lord, I thank you that you that at your name, angels can be dispatched, demons must go, and lives can be set free from every form of dep- of oppression. So yeah, you're you're um, you're giving a lot of uh, great wisdom, and and I love the prayers. Okay, we're gonna take a little break, and we'll be right back. Um, Victoria Riolano is my guest. Her book is called Warrior Mother: Equipping Your Heart to Fight for Your Family's Faith. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. My guest is Victoria Riolano. She's written a book called Warrior Mother, Equipping Your Heart to Fight for Your Family's Faith. Victoria, I've already got your book open right now to Chapter 9, Modeling the Faith. This chapter is not only challenging and yet so important, but I know there's things in this uh, chapter uh, that are significant. So maybe you could talk about this one in particular. Yeah, I love that chapter too. I think I love them all. But um, I love this chapter because it really speaks to this idea of observational learning. Um, Learning is 65% of what we see and 35% of what we hear. So if you just think about that when it comes to every day and children being in your home, what we say matters and how we behave matters. And so this chapter really just tries to break down some key aspects of things we can do in our home and be aware of, like how we treat people. Do we treat people kind? Do we talk down to them? Do we literally talk down to our children? Um, How we talk about the church, my husband and I have definitely been guilty of this in the past, Um, you know, just venting in front of them. And now they start to have a resilience towards the Lord or towards church. Um, How you share the Bible. And so Overall, just when it comes to parenting, being very aware of what comes out of your mouth and then also aware of of how you're behaving and are your actions turning your children away from God or towards God. And that's that's heavy to think about, but I think it's so important that we model the faith that we want to see in them. Mm -hmm. Victoria, I've always thought of this 
um, truth when people have said what you're doing um, speaks so loudly they can't hear what you're saying. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And in your book on page 143, you say, you know, we need to examine our own behavior and ask ourselves, if my child or said or acted like this, how would I feel? Yeah, that's something that convicted me as I wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm convicted right now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so how how we're going to be treating people, how the, how kids will be watching you treat others. Jesus said, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. So how your mom and dad are treating others is going to leave a huge impression. It doesn't matter what you say. Right, yeah. I once heard a pastor say, if we were to take your life and put it on mute, what will we observe? Oh. We observe you being kind. What we observe you praying. What we observe you screaming. We can't hear you, but we could certainly see you. <laughs> and that kind of messed me up a little, yeah. like because not just them watching, is even people who aren't a faith at all that are observing. You know how we're behaving and modeling the faith that we claim we have. So. Got to be, you know, doers of the word, not just hearers. Yeah. So. Victoria, you also do a nice job of handling in your book how you respond to trials. Now, kids are going to observe how you respond in crisis. Yeah. And so what we do, too, is even as our children are facing crisis, just this week, one of my children, she was very panicked about some of her final exams. And for her, that was a major trial, like she was kind of crying and hysterical about it. And that was my opportunity to bring God into that trial and really help her to evaluate, like, you know, what the Lord says about her, that she's more than her grades. Mm-hmm. You know, he loves her. And so when it, whether it's me, how I respond to the trials that she goes through, or even my personal life, you know, the children are watching. And sometimes I'll even bring the older children into it. Hey, how do you think God would have me respond to this? Because this is what I want to do. Uh, <laughs> and my children will even give me um, some great godly advice about, you know, certain things too. So I think that is so important to manage how we handle our anger and how, you know, how we handle people and situations because they're watching and they are taking notes. Mm-hmm. Victoria, how about sharing the Bible in your home? Yeah, I mean, it's so easy these days, like, to do so. There's so many different versions of the Bible, whether it's a storybook version or a magazine version. Mm-hmm. And so I believe in the practical, like, literally sharing the Bible with them and reading verses with them. But I also believe in making the Bible come alive for them, as in if my child, you know, falls on the floor, we're going to pray right then. If my child is having troubles with a bully, we're going to talk about maybe how Christ will handle that situation. So being like that living, walking testimony of what the Word says, I think is also just as important. Yeah, you bring out a great point. Just buy each child a Bible based on his or her reading level. And if your child Mm -hmm. is frustrated from a trial, draw him or her back to a biblical character and how he or she can overcome a struggle. And when your child feels unloved or insecure, share scripture verses that reflect God's love for them. So all good. Yeah. Yeah, really good. All right. Now we've got moms listening for sure. And, and probably grandmas who are going to talk to their daughters who are moms. Uh, so um, maybe talk about, you know, being a, a warrior mother, uh, what it, you know, sounds like it's going to be a big step. How would you encourage people to do this? 
Yeah. So for me, it's all about taking one step at a time. My favorite example of this is growing up in my home. My mom, sweet as apple pie, but you have to keep your room clean. That's <laughs> like her main, yeah. main room. And she, we always walk into whatever the room was, and she would say, I want you to look around this room, and I want you to tell me what belongs and what doesn't belong, one corner at a time. So that's always my advice to moms who feel like, I don't feel like a warrior at all. You know, I feel like a you know wounded warrior at best. You know, I'll always encourage them, like, let's take this one step at a time. Let's first tackle your prayer life. And then let's talk about modeling the faith. Let's talk about maybe some things you've believed. But instead of trying to fix it all, you know, today, it took us a long time to create these habits that make us feel insufficient or have caused us not to maybe be the best versions of ourselves. Let's take it one step, one corner at a time and seek the Lord for each of those individual things. Mm -hmm. And I think just within that, you'll see that God will just empower your intention to want to be better. Mm -hmm. So Victoria, your mom uh, was particular about how you kept your room and your husband in the military, who makes a better bed? Oh, he does. He, uh, I, I was going to, that was going to be my guess. <laughs> he is like, <laughs> that's like the clean person. I, I'd rather just cook. Let me cook. Mm -hmm. You can do <laughs> all the cleaning and, and he's excellent at it too. His mom is quite the warrior mother herself. So that's awesome. Yeah. So, you, you know, whenever you, you write a book and you spend time collecting thoughts and studying uh, God's word and, putting everything together, you're going to learn something yourself. What surprised you the most when you wrote this book about your own spiritual life? Yeah, I, you know, told my husband as I was writing this book, there were times where I felt like an imposter. I'm like, I know, Lord, you're telling me to write this, but I definitely haven't conquered it yet. Um, so it definitely revealed all the areas that I still need to work on, like one corner at a time. I'm I'm a part of this journey, too. And so I just think the Lord just highlighted that it doesn't matter how many degrees I have or how many kids or, you know, that I have a license or whatever as a minister, we're all still learning. And God is not looking for the perfect parent. He's looking for the one who's purposeful and who will be praying. And so I think that was like the biggest surprise to me because I really thought I had most of it together and I learned through each step. I needed to keep learning. There was so much more, and there's still so so much more that he can teach me. So I think, you know, that was like the kick to the pride that God was teaching me and using me, but still, he is still training me um, how to be a warrior mother at the mm -hmm. same time. Victoria, do you have a battle buddy, somebody that you pray with or people that you are in community with outside of your husband and family? Yeah, I do. I'm very grateful to have a few women in my life that I know if I'm really having a hard time, they'll show up in prayer for me and my children, um, but they'll also show up in action. I'm a prayer and action type of person. <laughs> so I'm very thankful that I do have a few women who I know that I can call on and, and God will use them to steer me back to him and even to tell me you need to go apologize or you are wrong with this or that. And, um, I'm very thankful to have that. Yeah, it makes a huge difference, doesn't it? Yeah, because <laughs> yeah. I've definitely tried it on my own, and and I ended up like very anxious, very frustrated, very isolated, 
crying my way through parenting because I had no one else who was kind of in the trenches with me. Of course, my husband was. But sometimes you need that mom-to-mom talk to kind of bring you back down and calm you down and make you realize kind of what the bigger purpose mm-hmm. in parenting is. Yeah. Victoria, is your mom still around? She is. Fantastic. Yes. She, she listens to every interview. Oh, great. Hi, Mom. <laughs> Your uh, daughter's doing a great job today, just so you know. Anyway, I just want to celebrate her day as well, Mother's Day um, coming up. And uh, you've got number eight on the way? Yes. Okay, that's fantastic. Um, you're you're doing an amazing job, um, and you're doing a great work in writing this book and helping others become warrior mothers. Um, I was also wondering about your husband, too. I hope he has that community as iron sharpens iron one man another. Oh, yeah. He's very fortunate to have several pastors that speak into his life. And then we have some amazing church members, too. I'm like, they can easily switch out with us anytime nice. because they are, you know, of such great faith. So, yeah, we both have that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for uh, being on the show today and happy Mother's Day and uh, blessings to you and your family. All right. Thank you so much. You bet. Victoria Riolano has been my guest. Her book is called Warrior Mother, Equipping Your Heart to Fight for Your Family's Health. We'll take a break and we'll be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.